Good day, and welcome to another episode of University of Minnesota Extension podcast, Minnesota CropCast. Uh, I'm Dave Nikolai, University of Minnesota Extension educator in crops, along with my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension specialist in soybeans. And Seth, we've had quite a week here. We're catching up on the crop, but uh, I think we still have a little ways to go as far as moisture is concerned. And you recently had an opportunity to travel out to Western Minnesota, I believe, out in Benson. And tell us a little bit about how those crops look uh, going out and coming back. Yeah, I just went uh, went to Benson. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of IDC research on soybean. And so um, this year I haven't done a lot. Uh, we're, we don't have those projects currently this year. So I've been mostly traveling south and things have looked pretty decent. And so it was, um, it was a little bit eye-opening for me to go straight west out of the Twin Cities and, and see the variability in the crop. And there's a lot of iron deficiency chlorosis this year. Um, a lot of challenges. Farmers are really pretty frustrated with it, but the corn is uneven too. So I think, you know, I think we can chalk it all up to tough, tough weather and dry weather um, through June and uh, through the, thus far into July. You know, I saw some recent uh, research uh, data out of the uh, Weather Service and it indicated that in Minnesota, uh, I think it was perhaps at the Twin Cities uh, airport, but we are a total of about four inches below where we are normally since the first of the year. So, and of course it doesn't seem like four inches is that much, but if in some areas it's even more, it certainly is spotty. And a lot of those situations that develop at central Minnesota uh, and some places got rain and some places didn't. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, we just, we're not really used to going into this time of the season, this dry across much of the state. And so um, you know, and as, as uh, Mark Seeley said the other day, it's going to be impossible for us to catch up at this point. So we're just going to have to, I think we're going to be living by these little showers that come through and uh, it's going to be variable out there. I think some farmers are going to catch some rains and be pretty happy and some aren't. And it's, it's uh, unfortunate when it, when it happens like that. But I think that's, that's probably the way the season's going to go. You think these soybeans can catch up? We always talk about the benefit of August rains. Is that in the offing as far as you can see? Yeah, the, the soybeans are not as tall and well canopied as they normally are this time of year. But, um, you know, they're, I mean, we've taken the top off of the yield potential in a lot of places, but I don't think that we're really, I don't think we were really, you know, any of us are really thinking about 80 to 100 bushel soybeans right now. And so I think what we're, what we're looking at is if we get good rainfall, things will do really well and farmers will be really, really happy with the soybean. The, yes, the soybean will do well where it gets rain um, and it has good conditions um, into August and through, through early September. Well, you know, when you cross Minnesota, of course, you see a lot of corn and soybeans, but certainly we have other crops that we are growing and can grow. And that brings us to our guest uh, today for Minnesota CropCast, uh, Dr. Jake Youngers. And he is the uh, assistant professor in the Department of Agronomy at the University of Minnesota St. Paul campus. Uh, so we want to welcome uh, Jake. And how are you doing? Hi, Dave and Seth. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Well, I think one of the things we want to do is provide a little background information about yourself because you're in some different areas that you're working with in research. I know you're involved in teaching. Uh, as as well, but give us a little bit of background about where you're from, grew up, uh, you know, everything. We don't have to go back to the log cabin days, but you can talk a little bit about some of the academic training and, and what led you here to the University of Minnesota. 
Yeah, sure. So I'm from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, eastern Wisconsin, and pretty industrial sort of blue collar region of the state. And uh, family kind of followed that same path. Uh, my dad is an industrial electrician, and both my brothers are maintenance mechanics and different factories in that region. And I uh, grew up kind of thinking about the same sort of career path. Um, but then started working some jobs during the summer in high school and realized that uh, maybe I can find something that's not so laborious and uh, decided to go to college, a first-generation college um, student in my family and uh, went to University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. So something that was close by, state school. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I was going to go to graduate school, more or less teach college classes in the future. Um, I just uh, was really wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. But I was really interested in the environment and nature, and I grew up hunting and fishing and really enjoying nature and uh, wanted to pursue a college uh, degree or a major that had something to do with that, with the environment. So I uh, majored in environmental studies and then uh, picked up a second major in biology um, and then went from there. So graduate school was where? Uh, University of Minnesota. I uh, took a summer internship at the Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve, and I did that right after undergrad. So came to Minnesota for a summer job and haven't left since. <laughs> that summer job turned into two years of work and then graduate school. Um, and then I'd had a couple other positions before starting my tenure track job here in this department in 2019. Oh, excellent. Would you say that you wanted to pursue a research type of environment to begin with or teaching or what led you to kind of this balanced approach? Yeah, um, I've always been quite curious and research driven in general, data oriented. Um, and I pursued a, this track in agricultural research because agriculture seemed to me to be the way to solve some of our major environmental challenges. So yeah, I was interested in plant science and then kind of went toward the more applied aspects and started working in agriculture. So you're, you've been, we know you as the Kernza guy, or some of us know you as the Kernza guy anyway. So tell us a little bit more about what, what brought you to that plant and what other, other plants you're working on and, and give us a little bit more of the route through, maybe even through the actual subdiscipline or through the through the, the biology of the, of the plant species you're looking at. Yeah, definitely. So it is kind of an interesting story. Um, I started working at Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve and doing very, very basic um, ecology research there and uh, started just as an intern not really knowing much about the experiments themselves. But as I learned about the experiments, I got more interested in those. And all of those experiments were done on prairies, native prairie species. And uh, there's a, a big paper and finding that came out of that that research that showed that if you increase the diversity of prairies, you get more biomass. And then at the time, there was a lot of interest around prairie bioenergy. And folks were thinking about harvesting large areas of prairies and turning that into biofuels like cellulosic ethanol. Um, so this was exciting to me because there's a potentially an economic driver to you know, restoring prairies and then making those diverse prairies. So I started working in that field of uh, sustainable bioenergy and really focused on uh, the ability to use prairies for biofuel and did my PhD work on that and started a postdoc 
doing that and then was kind of recruited by Don Wise and Craig Schaefer. They were at the time working on this perennial grain, which was Kearns at the time. And um, there was not a very large research network around this really new emerging crop. And they said, hey, you know, you know something about prairies and grasslands and a little bit about agriculture, (laughs) not much yet, but maybe you should come and work with us. We're developing this new perennial grain crop, the world's first perennial grain crop. So that's what led me to Kearns of back in 2014. So just broadly, I mean, I, I think some of, some folks may be listening to this, you know, and not have maybe have heard of Kernza, but hadn't really thought about it, even as a perennial grain crop. So tell us about what the advantage of the perenniality is in, 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 in terms of grains and, and harvest. You t- talked a little bit about prairie relative to um, um, the bioenergy piece, but just in terms of the grain, what, what's the real interesting piece for you there? Yeah, well, um, there's a lot of links between agriculture, annual row crop agriculture, and some environmental challenges, um, water quality, soil erosion, greenhouse gas emissions. And a lot of these um, can be addressed to some extent through our management, uh, genetics of our crops, and agronomic management. You know, we look at no-till as a way to conserve soil. Um, well, a perennial grain crop is another potential solution, another tool for the toolbox. Um, and in a perennial, you plant it once and a producer doesn't have to worry about tillage for three, four years, as long as that perennial can sustain yields. Uh, so there's less tillage involved, um, lower economic inputs. The producer doesn't have to worry about buying seed every year. Um, we're finding that these perennials, they can uh, grow really deep roots and find nitrogen and phosphorus deep into the soil profile where annuals can't. And that allows uh, the production of that grain um, to happen with less fertilizers. Uh, There's also some benefits related to weed pressure. Um, Perennials grow earlier. You don't have to worry about getting the seed in the field um, every year. So the Kernza intermediate wheatgrass, it grows back starting in late March here in Minnesota. And at that time, it can compete with emerging weeds. So that reduces herbicide requirements for that system. So there's a lot of economic and environmental benefits to a perennial grain crop. And so what, um, what do you, what's the biggest challenge the, from the biology of, of a perennial? Just thinking about a perennial grain crop, what's, you mentioned, a, you know, three or four years. And so I assume that's one of the challenges. Um, yeah, yield um, relative to the biomass or harvest index or things like that. So what what are the, um, I suppose, winter hardiness and all those kind of things can be challenges too. What what do you see? Is there a single single challenge uh, with the perenniality of, of, uh, of a grain crop or is it is it just lots of little things? Well, for intermediate wheatgrass right now, it's yield. <clears throat> it is that seed size and grain yield. Um, intermediate wheatgrass is very winter hardy, no issues there. Um, it's resistant to a lot of the major diseases that uh, annual grains are susceptible to. So there's fewer issues there that might change as acreage increases through time. Uh, but right now it's really about that yield and then yield longevity. And you kind of hit the nail on the head is that with a perennial grain crop, it has these deep, dense root systems. So the plant needs to take energy, carbon that it fixes through photosynthesis, and put that into those roots. 
well, there's only so much carbon it can fix. So you have to think that that has to come at the expense of some other tissue or plant organ. Uh, so right now it's really about the seeds. Uh, the seeds are smaller. There's fewer or less seed biomass per acre. Um, so we're trying to increase that. And the challenge is to breed new lines that both have large seeds and high yield, but also maintain that adequate root biomass to be a perennial and to be winter hardy. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I named one of my most recent proposals to Minnesota soybean. You, everybody wants something for nothing. And I think um, for some reason, I just keep coming around to this in, in our field is that everything seems to be a trade-off. Um, and you can't, it, it's tough to get something for nothing. But on the other hand, the other side of that that I'm just amazed about is that we, if we have targets that we want to hit, if there's a value proposition, we can, as as agriculturalists, we can create those systems as long as there's a, a value to it. If, if there's value in carbon in the soil, uh, we can create a crop that adds carbon to the soil. Um. So the questions really are how how do you um, get the most out of current <laughs> the current value proposition under the current circumstances, but how do you also design a crop for the future? I suppose right. So with the assumption that we're not ten years from now we're not going to be dealing with the exact same uh, regulatory or um, economic or environmental situation that we are now is that is that part of what drives your research and how you look at things? Absolutely. And I'm a cropping systems agroecologist and Kernza I see is a tool in the toolbox. There's no silver bullet here. Um, we're developing another tool like as Kernza and, and with all, all the students that I teach in a couple of undergraduate courses, a theme to my classes is trade-offs in both classes. And we always discuss trade-offs. Um, so I think it's just really important to assess those trade-offs and see how they fit into the context with the value propositions and what's available and keeping in mind, yeah, the economic situation, um, where can producers make money, um, how can consumers get uh, healthy products that are affordable, and how can we uh, achieve those goals in a way that protects our environment and makes sure that we can continue to farm um, in the future for a growing population. I think you hit on some of the important things. Um, I would say these are probably concerns that sometimes you hear about with a, with a new developing crop. And you mentioned economics, obviously. Um, I know the guy sitting next to you in soybeans, if we look at, you know, the, the number of acres and, and the price of soybeans currently um, and, and how that fluctuates back and forth, the number of corn acres, uh, and the and the farmer looks at that, and they look at the crop insurance and, and situations with that, and the cost of uh, land, uh, rent uh, situation. So, it, it, the harder thing is to de- figure out. Well, will there be demand? How do I market uh, the crop in a sustainable way? And what does happen? Uh, you know, we we talked about it as being a perennial, but in reality, you know, after three four years in the situations, there there'll probably come. Less and less, uh, you know, and end to that with the current varieties as we as we go through there, and we've had some weather extremes, obviously, um, and that may be an an advantage. But uh, what do you see as one of the things to possibly kickstart a little bit more in terms of 
acreage and, and demand. If, if you were using your vision here in the next, you know, five, eight years in, in terms of acreage. Increasing grain yield. That would be the ticket to kickstarting, um, or, or I shouldn't say kickstarting commercialization because it is undergoing commercialization. There are end users purchasing Kernza, um, growers. There's over 4,000 acres in the country um, selling their Kernza. Um, but the market is emerging. Um, there's an, a consistent price for the grain, and it's going to be varying right now depending on if it's conventional grain, organic, transition. Um, so it's, it's emerging and evolving. Um, but it, what we really, I think, need at this point is to increase grain yield and make that um, grain more affordable for, per, for end users to adopt it and incorporate it into a product um, so that we can get into more products that are more affordable for the consumers as well. Um, and that can be done, I think, um, by increasing seed size. So uh, right now, the, the, the grain is high value. It's um, selling for uh, orders of magnitude more per pound than annual wheat. But this is relying on the market um, paying a premium for those environmental benefits. So if they can sell that product to consumers who are willing to pay a little bit more to buy something that is cleaning our water or sequestering carbon in the soil, um, that, that's one way to do it. But the, the other way to do it is to really get the price down and get Kerns in more products to really drive up acreage. And I, th- I think that is really the ticket to uh, making this a successful crop. So maybe to put you on the spot a little bit, what are some typical grain yields out there right now and, and where would you like to go to from a real standpoint in terms of uh, the time it takes to develop that? Uh, yeah. Some numbers? Yep, definitely. Um, so I'll start by what we observe in our research plots. And so this is if a you know, producer could harvest every kernel of grain or darn near every kernel of grain in an acre, um, what would yields be? And Because this is theoretical yield, but it's actually what's out there. Um, so we see anywhere in the order of 800 to 1,200 pounds of grain per acre in our research plots. Now, producers on average are getting something closer to 600 pounds per acre, so almost half. And there's a lot to learn right now about how to harvest Kernza because uh, it's much smaller seed. Some of it has the hulls on it. Uh, some of it Fresh is clean in the combine. Uh, some stands don't do that as much. It really depends on the environment. It depends on genetics. So harvesting efficiency is not as dialed in as with our other crops. Um, and the plant breeders are, are working on that. Um, another thing to consider is um, end users are buying kerns of grain dehulled and naked of the, of the hulls. So I, I should step back and say that intermediate wheatgrass or kerns of um, it is not free threshing. So the, the seed uh, tends to retain the hulls, the lemon pilia on it, um, whereas annual wheat is free threshing. Uh, so we're working towards developing new lines that are free threshing. We don't have to worry about that. But right now, that hull is sort of an issue for processing, depending on where the kerns is going to go. Um, so once it's all said and done and, and the kerns is dehulled after, process, after it's harvested, it's more like 400 pounds per acre. So then what about, uh, I guess the question is about functionality, and it sounds like it's the, the, 
you you uh, equated quite a bit with with regular annual wheat. So, is that the measure? What uh, are you looking at it? I know there's you know there's some bread products and some beer products with it. What what's what's the best end use? What's the current favorite end use for for Kernza? Yeah, right now the low hanging fruit for end users is beer. Is to brew with it, um, not malted, but just adding it um, to uh, different malt or beverage products. Distilling also, um, folks are distilling Kernza. And that's, I think, the low-hanging fruit because it doesn't require as much processing. It doesn't need to be dehulled. The hulls kind of come in handy at that time, mm-hmm. actually. Um, but it does have a lot of properties that make it useful for um, uh, baked products as an alternative to wheat. It has typically higher protein, um, but the big drawback is a lower gluten content. And I'm not going to say no gluten. It does have gluten in it, so it can't be a, a no-gluten product, but less gluten, which makes it challenging for it to function in like rise breads and things like that. Fine for crackers and tortillas where that rise isn't needed, um, but in breads and anything else, pizza crust, things like that, that require a rise, it has to be mixed with annual wheat or something with gluten. So what, um, you're clearly, you're working, your larger focus is yield. Um, give us some, give us some um, just a, a little taste of some of the projects that you're working on that are uh, interesting. And I know you've got a lot of multi-state, you're leading a couple very large um, national projects. Um, so what, what are you working on and, and what's, what's really interesting at the more detailed level in your research? Yeah. So um, I love my job because I get to work in a lot of different aspects of uh, agricultural production from the agronomics, and I can talk a little bit about some of those projects, to sort of supporting the plant breeders as well. Um, so I work a lot with the plant breeding team, Jim Anderson and Prabeen Bajgain here, uh, who are, are selecting the new intermediate wheatgrass lines, the future varieties, um, and I'm helping with some of the phenotyping work and evaluating um, different lines across the state of Minnesota and and thinking about what are the traits that we really want to focus on to increase yield. So we can think about our classic yield component traits, um, how many spikes or ears per unit area, uh, how many grains per spike, how large are those grains. And then with intermediate wheatgrass or currency, you also have things like floret site utilization. What's the pollination efficiency? Are we, ending, are we, are we sure that we're getting as many of those flowers pollinated to turn into kernels as possible? Those are some of the fun questions that we're addressing. And um, I like to think about what growers can do to increase those yield components as well. And nutrients is a big thing. Um, Nitrogen specifically, Kernza loves nitrogen and uses it very effectively. It takes it up very effectively. Um, But the question is, where does that nitrogen go? Since it is a perennial with deep, dense roots, it needs nitrogen to support the root biomass. And it also produces a lot of leaves and stems and above ground biomass that's not grain. Um, and that's great for producers who can use that biomass, that vegetation, um, either in a forage system or a grazing system. That's a dual use aspect that really improves the bottom line and the economic viability of Kernza. Um, but we also want some of that nitrogen to make it into the grain and to make sure that yields are increasing. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of work with uh, optimum rates and timing of application of nitrogen. 
uh, to, to figure out when we can maximize grain size and grain yield relative to those other plant parts. So it's a crop that still is going to require inputs, obviously. It's not, quote, free from that situation and, and management uh, as well, but has some of the other aspects. Are you involved with some other aspects of what we typically call forever green in, in terms of other crops and cropping and projects or research at all? Yeah. Um, as a cropping systems person, I like to think about how we can take these new crops, our classical annual, summer annuals, um, along with winter annuals and perennials, and integrate those into more complex rotations uh, and really thinking about how to diversify those rotations. There's been a lot of work uh, that shows that diversifying crop rotations can in itself lead to those environmental benefits that we're looking for. Um, but it also diversifies the grower's economic portfolio, and you know, that makes it that economic portfolio more resistant to major fluctuations in markets and, and weather events. Um, so yeah, I, again, I see Kernza as an, another tool in the toolbox, and uh, some of our, our newer experiments are looking at um, what's the best crop to precede Kernza, what's the best crop to follow it, where we can kind of take advantages of these um, the way that these plants interact with one another when they're in a sequence in a rotation. So you mentioned, you, you know, you mentioned you're looking at this. So what's your gut feeling on, you know, ideal rotations or ideal systems? Um, you mentioned, um, you know, grazing um, and the value there. So include maybe animals into this too. So what, how do you see kerns out there? And then and then I'll give a follow-up to that is, is what, how do you, what do you see across Minnesota's landscape? I, I mentioned all the corn and soybeans I just looked at out the window today. What, what do you see out the window in, you know, 15 or 20 years from now in, in Minnesota? What, how, how might you see the state uh, change a little bit if, if you're successful with your work? That's an exciting question to think about. Um, right now, if, if I was a forage producer, I would be thinking about Kernza very seriously. Um, forage producers, those who are growing a lot of alfalfa um, and have access right now to forage markets that can sell this stuff. Um, it, intermediate wheatgrass is a great crop following alfalfa. You got a legume in the field for three to four years, building up a pool of nitrogen, um, then planting a grass after that that can take up that nitrogen for multiple years is an excellent uh, environmental situation there. Um, but also there's all these economic benefits, as I said. Um, and yeah, growers in that sort of situation can also start thinking about intercropping and mixing Kernza and alfalfa, especially if they want to use that stand for dual use, if they want to harvest grain and harvest the forage. Um, so we have some pretty fun, exciting experiments going on where we're intercropping different legume species into intermediate wheatgrass, alfalfa being one of those species, and looking at how much nitrogen gets fixed and then transferred to the Kernza, and thinking about then how much um, nit nitrogen fertilizer replacement value does that have. Um, but then also that alfalfa integrated into that uh, system increases the protein level of the forage, which you know then improves... Uh, the nutritive value and the feeding value of the biomass from that. So that's what's really exciting, I think, uh, right now, and where I see it being easily integrated 
into Minnesota agriculture, sort of in those um, forage production systems. Thinking further into the future, um, I'm hoping that more of these forever green crops can also make their way into commercialization and we start to see more diverse rotations and uh, Kernza being incorporated into um, rotations with the corn, soybean, maybe some winter camelina or pennycress as cover crops um, in those systems. Alfalfa also being integral into these rotations to bring back nitrogen at uh, really high levels to these, these fields. Um, so seeing more crops on the landscape but integrated um, with one another um, and having a, a, you know, making sure that that results in a really robust, resilient um, agricultural economy in our state. Well, certainly it's going to require a team. Um, I dare say even, you know, I'm coming from a weed science background and, and I think about what we can do to control certain weeds by having a better rotation and uh, more competition in case, things like giant ragweed where we can have an alfalfa or whatever and, and seed. So that all has an uh, effect. Uh, before we leave completely here uh, today and talk, you want to mention a little bit about some of the classes that you are actually teaching here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, you are into a, a number of different things. Are some of those uh, more of an introductory situation? Uh, you're stretching yourself out a little bit, I'm sure, in, in terms of this. But uh, uh, you, we've had a lot of great instructors uh, in, in the past uh, here at the University of Minnesota. Um, I can remember the the old names, uh, Dr. Vern Cardwell, Smith, etc., and a lot of those folks uh, uh, have a good reputation. So, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, teaching is is half my job, and um, I'm super excited about it. And I teach two courses right now, both in the fall semester. Um, one is Agro 1103, so it is an entry level freshman sophomore, um, and it's exciting because I get students from six different colleges across the University of Minnesota uh, enroll in that class. And um, yeah, so it brings a lot of different diverse perspectives to the class. And we do a lot of engagement, a lot of group work discussions. And it's just really fun to, to hear the different viewpoints of students from very different backgrounds in that class. And uh, the other class I teach is Agro 4605. Uh, strategies for agricultural production and management. And that is a class that I, I consider like advanced agronomy. And it's really uh, data-based in terms of like how do you find or develop uh, real-world data to inform decision-making on the farm. Uh, so a lot of it is looking at where we can find publicly available data and how does can one use that data. Um, everything from weather data to past cropping systems, the history, uh, using satellites and things like that. Uh, so I think that, yeah, those two are uh, they're at both ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, the levels of agronomy from the intro to the advanced. Uh, and then in the future, I hope to propose some and provide some other courses that are maybe uh, more relevant to the times and thinking about a digital agronomy type course. Um, something that's focused on climate change and, and soil carbon, um, but those might be coming to, in the future. So this is um, probably not a wise move on my part, but I'm going to open this can here. I just, I literally spoke with a farmer three hours ago, and the first thing he asked me is, why doesn't your department have um, agronomy undergraduate degree? <laughs> 
So what do you think, uh, what, what would an agronomy degree in, a, in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics, what, in today's agriculture, um, what might that look like? And who would we recruit to, to, um, for students um, to reside within that major? And, and do you think that, that there's some sustainability within a major like that? Well, I think um, an important part of answering that question is uh, to look at industry and and see where the gaps are. Where where do industries where are they working where they're not getting the talent that they need, um, and and helping think about how we can provide that um, train students to fill those uh, talent gaps. And I I think that those talent gaps are out there, and I think that the University of Minnesota can indeed. Um, work with students and prepare them to take those important positions in agricultural industry. Uh, you mentioned the word sustainability, and I, and that's I think one of the areas where a lot of these uh, large multinational egg corporations are. You, you see they're hiring left and right, looking for people to work in their sustainability sectors, um, and we are here at the University of Minnesota, sort of at the forefront of that. Um, it's not an agronomy major, um, but they uh, students can get access to that type of information and training in here. Um, but in terms of an agronomy major, I think that we'd really have to focus on digital agronomy and technology. Uh, right now, you, you look at um, some of those industries, what they're providing and what they're offering in terms of agronomic services. A lot of them have to do with drones um, and uh, lots of what we call big data. How do you handle big data? Um, stuff coming out of yield monitors to instruments that are monitoring soil moisture, uh, aspects like that. Um, at precision egg and uh, utilizing um, information that we can get from satellites that's publicly available. All of this is, these are tools that could definitely help uh, producers improve their profits and yields. Um, and I think that that's where the University of Minnesota could really start to expand in undergraduate education then on that front. Beautiful. I, I, I really like your answers. I, I agree totally. I think, I think you're right on. I think it's been a challenge. I think when, when farmers ask us questions like this, it's, it's a little bit coded because what they're asking for is, you know, my son or daughter is leaving the farm and going to the Twin Cities and, and there isn't an agronomy major for them to major in, but I'm, I've never been brave enough to ask them if their son or daughter really plans on going back to the farm. And I think the answer in, in nearly every case is no, that they're, they're looking to use their farm background um, to help provide some context for uh, a future in, in an agricultural industry. Um, but it's, it's likely not to be farming itself. And on the other hand, we've got all these brilliant um, uh, students coming to us that don't have agricultural backgrounds like yourself, and we need to find them a home uh, and provide them um, the information and education so that they can, uh, they can improve our, our industry. So I, I, think, I think you're on to something. I, think, I know that this has been um, a plan for our department head to get us together to discuss this, so... This is maybe a little preamble for, for a future discussion with a broader um, group. And maybe this is 
super academic for our podcast here today, but I, I thought it was uh, worth asking at the very end here. So really appreciate your time today, Jake. It's been really, really fun uh, chatting with you. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity. This has been great. Thank you very much for stopping by. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. And this is the conclusion of the episode of Minnesota CropCast, University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, our guest today was Dr. Jake Youngers at the University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy. Uh, this is Dave Nikolai along with my co-host, uh, Seth Nave. Uh, and thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.